This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 22nd, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Journalists, activists, and even high-ranking government officials are among those probably targeted by sophisticated hacking produced by an Israeli cybersecurity company. And the implications couldn't be bigger for freedom of the press and attempts to advance civil society worldwide. Cato's Pat Ennington and Julian Sanchez comment. This isn't the first time that journalists, I mean, not by a long shot, that journalists have been targeted for surveillance and collection of their information. But tell us about this case, Julian. So this is a a pretty extraordinary story, uh, in part because it's it's coming from a consortium, uh, the Pegasus Consortium of uh, media organizations across many different countries uh, that have combined forces to report out a story uh, based on a, a data leak, uh, first apparently obtained by Amnesty International, uh, but they obtained a, what appears to be a target list with about 50,000 phone numbers uh, that they have tied to the uh, Israeli-based uh, surveillance uh, not a company, uh, NSO Group, which sells essentially spyware and exploits to uh, governments around the world. Um, NSO... Uh, strongly claims that its software is only supposed to be used to to track uh, serious criminals and terrorists. But uh, what the Pegasus media organizations were able to find, uh, Pegasus, by the way, is the name of this flagship piece of spyware produced by NSO Group. Um, What these organizations were able to find was that this list uh, contained numbers of uh, large numbers of journalists uh, political uh, officials, uh, opposition leaders, human rights activists, uh, and they were able to identify uh, about a thousand of these and got access to about 67 cell phones that were on this target list uh, and found that more than half of them showed signs of either having been compromised or uh, signs of attempted compromise by uh, by NSO malware. And this included uh, the fiance and widow of uh, murdered Saudi uh, writer uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, who had been a columnist for the the Washington Post, uh, among a number of other uh, prominent reporters and, and human rights activists, um, clustered heavily in in Mexico and the Middle East and India, uh, but they found uh, targets in I believe about fifty countries uh, around the world. So this is a, a you know, we don't know what percentage of, of the numbers on this list, whose origins are, are frankly somewhat mysterious, were actually uh, successfully compromised. But uh, this suggests, uh, contrary to NSO Group's denial, that this is software that is being widely used to compromise the phones of people who are being targeted for political reasons. And it's a really pretty extraordinary kind of surveillance because, of course, if you compromise someone's smartphone, the endpoint, you bypass encryption completely. We expect uh, that uh, encryption as we communicate over the internet will protect our uh, communications from eavesdropping. But of course, that doesn't help very much if you compromise the endpoint where that data is ultimately decrypted. Uh, and Compromising the, the endpoint, the phone, means not only can the attacker see anything that's visible to uh, the user, but they can potentially also activate the camera and microphone on the phone. So they essentially turn the smartphone into a, a kind of perfect surveillance device. It's got geolocation information. It's got audio. Um, it's got all your communications data. 
Um, so it's it's the ideal target uh, to compromise. Uh, so NSA Group now says it is looking into potential uh, misuse of its uh, services, which again it insists it only wants to be used for uh, legitimate surveillance of of you know terrorists and other such targets. Um, but uh, you know I think a lot of folks around the world now are uh, are, are going to be looking at their phones with new suspicion. All right, uh, Pat. This goes back a long way. Well. I mean, it does. I mean, the whole issue of this kind of technology being available and commercial companies essentially cooperating with governments to essentially subvert people's uh, rights, it does go back a long way. You know, in, in the course of the research that I've, I've been doing, I came across a, a particular cable from the president of Western Union to the head of the Secret Service just after World War One was declared in which uh, they said, you know, we'll, we'll give you whatever you need. And there wasn't anything in there about, oh yeah, you'll have to go to the judge to get it. No, we'll just simply hand it over to you. It's not, it's not a problem. So I think it would kind of bring us up to the present here. Um, I was involved in a conversation a few years ago with the CEO of a technology company that I will not name when this whole debate over, uh, essentially the government's demand for so-called encryption backdoors was very, very hot, which it still is in many respects. And coming from the political world, as I do, um, you know, my my first instinct is, well, let's let's see if there's a legislative way to kind of shut this down. Um, and and so I just simply asked this person, hey, uh, why don't you and and your and your and your frenemies, your competitors out there, get together, form a, a major political action committee, and just make it very clear to House and Senate members that if they introduce any legislation to try to compromise encryption backdoors, that uh, they'll be politically destroyed. And this individual responded by saying, well, I can, I can spend a dollar on a pack or I can spend a dollar on so-called customer experience. And that's what told me uh, all I needed to know essentially about the priorities of at least some folks in Silicon Valley. There's an awful lot of rhetoric that we hear coming out of, of companies like Apple. And I, I use Apple products. I'm definitely a fan. But I think this most recent episode has exposed yet again uh, some of the issues here with iMessage and, and the like. And for a long time, Apple was not encrypting uh, iCloud backups, um, which obviously would have provided law enforcement with a, a ready way, you know, to kind of get at just about anybody's data fundamentally. Um, but I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see going forward whether or not any folks on the House or Senate side, and I would say that probably Ron Wyden of Oregon would be the one most likely to go in this direction, offer legislation to basically prohibit, you know, let's say, U.S. government agencies from employing things like NSO Group, uh, you know, for this specific purpose. I don't know if anybody will go necessarily that far, but I think it, it's going to call, there are going to be people inside and outside of government, they're going to be calling for, you know, some kind of action here uh, to rein this in. Julian, uh, one of the notable sort of stunning things that uh, came out in this, uh, the article that I read in the Washington Post basically says the attacks on at least some of these devices was what's known as a zero click attack. That is the, the device was compromised without the person necessarily even touching their phone or clicking a link. Right. This is sort of the Holy grail of, uh, of, of device compromise, uh, you know, for a long time, typically for the, the malware to sort of install itself, the user would at least have to, uh, click on some sort of link to connect their phone to the the delivery system, uh, but the most sophisticated current attacks are able to uh, to bypass that to essentially 
uh, force the phone to connect to, to the, the malware delivery server uh, without the user having to interact, uh, which means that, you know, there used to be at least this sort of sliver of uh, potential for someone to protect themselves by being very cautious about uh, what they were clicking on. If they got a text or an email, uh, you know, don't click on anything unless you're very confident uh, about, about where that link is going. Um, but the most sophisticated current methods bypass that. We know that uh, Amnesty International, which did the data forensics on these, found uh, that these attacks appear to have worked even on the most recently uh, patched version of Apple's iOS. So um, this is this is not you know the kind of vulnerability that'll only work on uh, old or outdated models. Now, and I'm mentioning Apple here uh, not to suggest that they're uniquely vulnerable, but rather that um, most of the data they got showing evidence of compromise was from iPhones uh, because they have more detailed forensic logs. And so they were able to get more forensic evidence off of iPhones. Uh, with the Android devices, in many cases, uh, their analysis was inconclusive because uh, you know this is sophisticated spyware that makes efforts to disguise its presence. And so uh, in those cases, they, they often just weren't able to find traces that would uh, show conclusively whether or not the phone had been compromised. Uh, when I spoke with uh, Brandon Valeriano recently about uh, the, the various hacks of uh, systems that are made use of by governments, um, among other firms, uh, you know, the 1,500 or so businesses that may have been affected by this most recent hack, it seems that, that information uh, security and uh, the robustness of security on all kinds of systems is just not as great as we would imagine it to be. Well, I, the point that I try to make to folks is a very simple one, which is this. On planet Earth, there are really only two types of IT systems those that have been hacked or compromised and those that will be hacked or compromised. I mean, we have not come up, I think it may have been uh, our friend Oren Kerr who uh, once said at a Cato event that we haven't figured out how to make perfect software. Uh, and, and I think, and we, we certainly haven't figured out how to make, you know, completely impregnable devices and all the rest of that. And, and I think this whole episode just reminds us of the fact that um, offense, you know, continues to have fundamental um, advantages over defense at this point in time. And it, it is worth remembering too, I think that, you know, when the internet was created, um, it, it was not really created so much with security in mind. Uh, and a lot of devices, you know, if certainly in the very early days were not created with security in mind. And, and this is why we continue to see this war, if you will, uh, back and forth between offense and defense on this. And, uh, this this is a big one. Julian is right. I mean, this is this is kind of epic. And I am very curious about how Amnesty got their their mitts on this. This almost sounds like something that WikiLeaks would uh, would would manage to get their hands on. Yeah, I mean, the the, the interesting mystery in the story here is uh, all these articles refer to this list of fifty thousand phone numbers that Amnesty somehow obtained. Uh, and so the obvious question is, well, where did this list come from? Because it's it's contains numbers from something like 50 countries. So it's not like, well, there was a whistleblower at one, you know, government agency who shared their list of, of you know, journalists and human rights uh, activist targets. Um, NSO group claims they don't have visibility on their clients' targeting behavior, um, which you can imagine intelligence services around the world would not necessarily want the 
um, the contractor to have uh, that kind of, of detailed visibility into their activities um, for sensitive intelligence matters, especially if you're using the uh, the software to target journalists. Uh, and so, you know, there's a sort of short list of, of entities with a kind of capability to generate this kind of list in the first place. If it was not NSO itself um, that the leak came from, you kind of go, well, who, how did someone compile this list? Um, so that, that will be an interesting uh, thing to watch for as this story unfolds. And and uh, I assume, or I sh- perhaps tell me if I'm wrong, but I assume that this means that a much larger pool of journalists and activists will be submitting their phones for review. I would. <laughs> yeah, Amnesty International actually, I, I believe, has released a um, suite of forensic tools. Uh, yeah, it's it's called a a mobile verification toolkit, uh, which is designed to make it easier to uh, analyze data from mobile devices to look for the telltale signs of Pegasus uh, infiltration or compromise. Uh, so I think the idea there is, well, if, uh, you know, it's, I, I don't know if this is the sort of thing most individuals are going to be uh, capable of, of doing themselves, but that, um, you know, the IT department at uh, NGOs and uh, uh, journalistic uh, outlets uh, may be able to, you know, get into reporters' phones and try to uh, look for signs of compromise. I mean, the again, the uh, the this consortium of media organizations say they were able to organize uh, to to identify about a thousand people from this list original list of fifty thousand targets, and of that thousand they identified, they got a hold of uh, sixty seven cell phones that they were able to do a, a deep a forensic deep dive on, and more than half of those had. Uh, sort of pretty clear signs of either compromise or attempted compromise. Um, so it's a small sample, but then the hit rate uh, for that uh, for that sample they looked at is pretty high. Um, so that you know, does does seem to imply um, there's potentially this much much larger pool of people uh, who uh, who are carrying perfect surveillance devices and may not know it. Pat Eddington and Julian Sanchez are senior fellows at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.